Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of Pie Hard. Alex, did you know this is our 40th episode of Pie Hard, the big 4-0? Get out. No, it is. It's crazy, isn't it? What a milestone. It feels like the 100th episode. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's the 100th episode in Pie Hard years, I think. You know, it's like dog years. You yeah, know, there's a, one year. There's a different, there's a different, yeah. One year as a Collingwood supporter often feels like seven. Now, it's great to be back with you in the Pie Hard studio, Alex. Yes, it is. It is terrific to be back, Demo. Where we listeners will know that we're we're close to sources at the club. Some would say perhaps too close. Too and, close. Um, we know there's a bit of man flu going around the pies, and we may or may not have contracted that um, <laughs> man flu over at my end. Uh, so we had a bit of a forced uh, sabbatical, I suppose you'd mm. call it. Um, but you know, let's just call it an early mid-season break. We're back, ready to go. Um, and look, let's be honest. We do our best work when our on-field fortunes are plummeting. So, looking mm. forward to it. And can I just say, it's a good thing we are back because we go away for... Pie Hard goes away for two weeks mm. and look what happens. Darcy Moore, Collingwood captain-in-waiting, has gone from hero to zero in mm. the eyes of the corrupt mainstream football media. The side has lost consecutive games, uh, weren't in the hunt against the Bulldogs. The side, as you said, has been ravaged by a vicious man flu um, swirling around the uh, mm. the ducks of the Lexus Centre. Epidemic. And the club, Demo, as we know, the club and Heretier are at an all-time low point, which is difficult to watch. Every tall player on our list has gone for reconstructive surgery. Ginevan's mm. been reprimanded for having a beer when he should have been given the keys to the city. You know, let's be honest, it is... It is that mid-season, mm. it's not mid-season, but it's coming up to mid-season, mid-season malaise. Mid-season malaise, yeah. We're losing a little bit of interest. The The team's form is wa- is waning somewhat. Mm. You know you know what it's like out there. You, 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 know, you know it's a little bit, you know, you're plugged into the Collingwood games, but the rest of the league, it's like. And you know what happened every other year demo, like last year in particular, at this particular time, the off-field shenanigans. And the backroom dealing and all that Jeff Brown mm. hoopla. Bloodletting. It kind of, the bloodletting just reached an all-time high, mm. like mm. Godfather-esque. Mm. Entertainment. And it kind of kept us going through the entire mm. mid-season yeah. into Buckley's sacking, which was dramatic. Mm. One of the best monologues mm. I've ever heard on Pie Hard was the Thank intro you. to the Buckley episode. And this year, with no, basically no off-field uh, distractions, no instability at the club, we're forced to just watch the football and talk about the football. So, thank God we have a special guest. Well, you know what we do when we get to a lull on Pie Hard and you nailed it on the head just then? We get a guest mm. and we don't just get any guest on Pie Hard. No. We get the guests that don't speak to anyone. Nobody. They don't, spe- they don't speak to the mainstream media. Mm-hmm. You haven't heard them on SEN. Mm-hmm. You, haven't, you haven't read their biography. And our next guest is the personification of the quiet magpie, the magpie who doesn't play the most amount of games, mm-hmm. but the amount of games he did play carried significant weight. And we're talking about Jimmy Clement. And we're going to dive into this into this subject with Jimmy in a moment. But it's clear to all magpie fans out there that Jimmy Clement was an absolute champion of the Collingwood Football Club mm-hmm. but did not get the send-off he deserves. So, we're going we're gonna to touch on that with him very, very shortly. We have some ideas on how to do that. Uh, but I've got to say, of all the Collingwood interviews we have done on Pie Hard, this one to me, it has the, it has the most amount of mystery because mm. genuinely, when researching this interview, 
Of course, there's stats. Of course, there's commentary about Clement the man. Mm. But there's no commentary from the man. No, he's shrouded. He's shrouded in mystery. Until now. In a very special episode of Pie Hard. The Unshrouding. The 40th episode of Pie Hard. 40. The Unshrouding. Big 4-0. Jimmy Clement on Pie Hard. This is Pie Hard. Looking at Collingwood today, it's hard to imagine that this was one of the toughest suburbs in Melbourne. I have a magpie tattooed in a certain spot. I wouldn't say it's the biggest magpie getting around. Out of control brawl outside a Collingwood pub. 60 years ago, it was lined with boot factories. As gritty, grotty suburbs in prime locations turned into trendy hotspots. One's had five bounces, nearly get another one. He's the smartest guy on the team. He's going to have too many to pick from. You've got to go back to Billy Graham at the MCG for an American to dominate like this. The bubbles bursting three decades of grand final wobbles. I still can't believe it. I can. Oh. A weekend order by the club of 288,000 cans to be consumed. More comfortable in myself. It's as close as you'll get to greatness, you peanut. Shut up. You may know our next guest from the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, and the West Australian Fishing Industry Council Monthly. He's an experienced ASX company director skilled in strategy, cultural change, team building, management, and mergers and acquisitions. He's good at achieving goals, even better at stopping them. Long before he wore a pinstripe suit and tie, he wore the famous black and white stripes with complete and total distinction. Crossing over to the Magpies from Fremantle in 2000, the deal delivered Collingwood one of the most mind-blowing ROIs in recorded commercial history. Playing 146 peroxide-free games for the Pies, he was a standout contributor in the 2002 and 2003 Grand Finals and finished third in the Copeland Trophy in just his second season at the club. In 2004, he became the first fullback at Collingwood since Jack Reagan in 1936 to win the Copeland Trophy. He won it again in 2005 and finished a narrow second in 2006. But then his legacy was cast and recognised as one of the premier defenders in the league. His versatility set him apart from most defenders, and his gigantic football brain and minuscule police record made him an anomaly at Collingwood. But it was on the field where Jimmy Clement's powers were on full display. As a defender, we'd never seen anything quite like him. He could nullify the smallest of forwards, and cut the tallest down to size. He was unbeatable one-on-one, as well as a dashing, line-breaking rebound defender. He was a magnificent long kick with pinpoint laser precision, a powerful overhead mark, and good at ground level. Quick on his feet and strong. A leader on the field and a mentor to the likes of premiership heroes Maxwell, Shaw, and Lumumba Offit. He played hard, smart, and reliable football as consistent as a fine Swiss timepiece, but less showy. It was American showman P.T. Barnum who once said, always leave them wanting more. And that's precisely what he did, quietly departing the game the same way he played it, on his own terms. We invited him onto Pie Hard to, quote, aggressively fast-track the achievement of our growth objectives. And frankly, we're quite shocked that he said yes. Jimmy Clement? Welcome to Pie Hard. 
thank you for having me, Dad. So I hardly recognise myself in that introduction, quite frankly. <laughs> You're more than welcome. If you need us to um, do one of those introductions for your next uh, boardroom meeting, we'd be happy to. Or if you ever do become the Collingwood president, we we would obviously love to write speeches for you. You know that. Uh, well, I mean, um, you know, it's uh, how, do you, how do you beat an introduction like that? Uh, yeah, speech, speeches written by yourselves, particularly for you know current role and shareholder meetings and all that, that would uh, be quite unique. <laughs> they can uh, get they can get a bit dry those things, can't they? I do, I yeah. do. That was that was a lot more exciting. So thank you. You're welcome. All right, let's dive straight in. We've got we've got a packed. Um, 45 minutes that we want to run through some stuff with you. So as I mentioned in the intro, Jimmy, your retirement, it felt sudden and it did it blindsided many supporters. It was masked by a devastating preliminary final loss and a certain number five hanging up the boots at the same time. It felt looking back now that you didn't get the proper Collingwood farewell you deserved. So we're going to ask you, would you be open to wearing a GoPro and being shot out of a cannon at Collingwood's next home game? <laughs> Oh, look, I've, I've enough trouble tying my shoelaces these days with, uh, you know, bad backs and things like that. Um, uh, being shot out of a cannon would be the end of me. But oh, going back to 2007 and, and, and the retirement, um, I was, look, I was never a big one for, for fanfare or anything along those lines. And um, and uh, the thought of actually doing a press conference along those lines to explain the reasons I was leaving at that point in time, I just couldn't think of anything worse. So. Mm. I was just really happy to confide in in my great friends and close teammates, and obviously my coach, mm. um, my family, and my other sort of closest confidants. And and so I knew when I walked off that field that that was it. And um, you know, I was actually surprised I was able to keep my emotions the truth and, and sort of get through the next day. And the first person I told was Mick. In fact, and um, yeah, look on the on reflection, I wouldn't change it. I think um, you know. One chapter closes, another opens, and like all, all good footy clubs, um, it's about the next generation. So once you're gone, you're gone. And it's fantastic to do something like this to, to reflect, but it was it was about that next crop of players coming through and uh, who went on to win sort of premiership in 2010 and have another crack in 2011. Mm. Um, and once you're done, it's their time. So, mm. um, yeah, pretty comfortable. Yeah, it was a very non-Collingwood um, departure, you know, w- w- without the fanfare. What what were Mick's first words when you um, told him he, sh- he must have been he mu- his jaw must have hit the floor? No, it's, it's Mick, Mick's always a funny one. Is um, you know this this idea of you know once you think you're going to retire, you're done. Yeah. Mm. So you know he he accepted that, and he also accepted for the reasons that I was going. It's just disappointing that we didn't get to work together again, and have just such great respect for the man. Um, and still, and still stay in touch with him. But um, he was fantastic and yeah. uh, welcoming of the news in regards to the fact that I was so comfortable with it and you know had made the decision. So he was fully supportive. Didn't try and talk me out of it at all. Quite the opposite, in fact. Speaking of Mick, Jimmy, it's uh, written in the uh, Collingwood Forever section of the club website that in September two thousand, when Noel Judkins told Malthouse, "We really need a bloke that's six foot three, can run and do the disciplined things." And is good overhead. We like James Clement. Malthouse replied, Jesus, I love James Clement. Now, <laughs> I don't know why Mick was calling Noel Judkins Jesus, but one thing's for sure, you were a pivotal part of that Malthouse rebuild. How was how was Collingwood sold to you? And how big a draw card was Mick in getting you over the Nullarbor? 
Uh, we'll mix with you. So um, obviously as a, as a West Australian and a teenager coming through uh, sort of schoolboy ranks, um, West Coast Eagles were in their prime and winning premierships and and it was a one-team town, so it was just uh, at fever pitch. And, and Mick Malthouse, um, you know, just had almost deity status. Um, so I, I got to interact with Mick a fair bit, you know, just as far as junior development and, and some interest uh, from that club. I ended up at Fremantle, but, um, you know, always had a connection there. So when when the football club approached me about uh, one sort of coming over with Mick, he'd only been there a year, and... Uh, I sat at my dinner table, in fact, uh, with Michael Broadbridge at that time, but it had spoken to Mick on the phone and we, we talked about the rebuild and the type of players that we're bringing in and this idea of building a club not only around talent and game style and, and sort of picking that club up from effectively the bottom of the table and taking it somewhere, but he talked about putting together great characters and culture and all these things that, you know, I just wanted to be a part of. And, and, and let's face it, it was the biggest club in the land. And uh, I, I had a lot of friends as well who um, sort of post-uni and all these sort of stuff, they all went overseas. And because I was playing footy, I really only had one opportunity to spread my wings outside of, you know, little old Perth in West Australia, and that was to go east. So to go east to play for Mick House, mm. to play for Collingwood, you know, one of the largest sporting organisations in the Southern Hemisphere, it was an absolute no-brainer. So um, to this day, I pinch myself. And in fact, if I go back to my first year of... Um, of league footy playing for South Fremantle the year I got drafted. The first guy who ever knocked on my door in regards to uh, interest was Ricky Barham when he was the recruiting guy yeah. for, for, for the Magpies. Right. So, you know, it was interesting that there was yeah. interest there. That sort of faded away because Fremantle had these priority picks and I got pulled out of the draft anyway, even if Collingwood had wanted to pick me. But to, to end up there and playing under Mick, it was, um, you know, it's... It, all roads were leading there. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, Coming from Perth, it must must have been a, a huge culture shock to walk into, you know, that club, that environment at that time. I think Mick had been there for a year. Um, Collingwood had uh, had what was coming off a couple of years of of um, not fantastic results, and expectations were were bubbling over like a witch's cauldron. So, <laughs> what what was it like walking into that environment, Jimmy? Did it was was it surprising? Was it what you expected? Was it bigger? And how did you cope with it? Um, so so a couple of things. I, I remember um, even prior to playing for Collingwood, I would I'd turn up on the bus at Vic Park and drive through Abbotsford. And as a West Australian used to greenery and beaches, I'd just go, <laughs> one of the most horrific places on earth. Who the hell would I <laughs> The Yarra. So playing, playing footy there was one thing, but then I, I, I spent the whole time in Melbourne actually living in Abbotsford. So I was an Abbotsford local. All right. So, yeah. Right. That's, that's what we yeah. like. Mm. Um, From the crisp, salty air of Fremantle Harbour to the dingy, drug-addled laneways of Abbotsford. the Bronx. Now, I was, I was, assured, I was assured that our, our purchase was going to go in the right direction because it would be gentrified eventually. Yeah. But as we, were, as we were moving our furniture on the very first day, we were greeted by a used syringe at our front gate. So that was a good introduction. Um, actually, actually addressing the question, I mean, um, uh, the history that was involved with Vic Park, it was pretty dilapidated, but um, one of the first things I got to do in the first couple of weeks was to go into the bowels of Vic Park and actually have a look at mm. the memorabilia mm. uh, catalogue and the trophies and the photos, and it was just phenomenal. And, mm. and it re- that's when it really dawned on me of what I was about to be a part of. Mm. 
uh, from the black and white photos of, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s of, you know, the G and and the history and the players that have played for that organisation and the Copeland Trophy winners and all these sorts of things. I, I think I even said, you know, ridiculous when I think about it to the guy to the, who, was, who was, you know, looking after that memorabilia, you know, one of these days I'm going to win one of those Copelands and got the whole one and things like that. Then beyond that, um, the fans were phenomenal, particularly for a, a group that had been so starved to success through that period. But there was this real energy that came from it as well because, um, you know, Ed was in his absolute prime mm. and attracted the best coach in the land. There was this real fever pitch in regards to um, new sponsorship, new image, um, taking Collingwood, you know, back to the top. There was a real embracing of, of the history, um, not putting a ceiling on where we could go. And Mick had assembled just this, the best way to explain it is just this foreign legion of misfits mm. from other clubs to play <laughs> specific roles that would then sort of put some meat around the bones of some of the talent that he had there and sort of Buckley and Burns and Lecuria and Rocker and so on and so on. And some of these kids coming through in Fraser and Magic Davis and things like that, it was, it was just phenomenal. And then... With that excitement, you know, part of the pitch that they didn't get going back to that is they said, look, you know, you're going to play centre-half back for Collingwood. So I was pretty excited. But when it finally came to the crunch and, you know, all the gloss got taken off and Mick said, no, actually, you're going to play in the back pocket. So, <laughs> <laughs> but I was playing wrong. Promises. Playing wrong. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Should have got that in writing. I yeah. love this uh, idea of the foreign legion of Collingwood, M- Jimmy. The misfits. It ironic because uh, Malthouse was well known to use other military analogies um, to win us a premiership. But um, you know, when you arrived at the club, were there certain players that you connected with straight away, or was it a slow burn to, to try and get to know some of the um, you know the rat here ranks? No, and and this this was this was part of the thing is is. Um, made immediate connections with guys that are still lifelong friends and will be. Forever, um, you know, more more of a backline flavour in, in the sense that uh, turned up at the same time as Shane Wakeland. Um, you know, Preston Giacomo was mm. there in his in his early years, became really close and great mates with Tarkin Lockyer, who was cycling through the backline. Uh, you know, Scott Burns. Um, you know, some of the some of the young blood coming through. Um, Chad Rintoul, who not too many people would remember, was a West Australian human mm. battering ram. Turned up a year after that, <laughs> um, and. And so it was almost immediate, and that's what made it so special. And that's why I reckon when I turned up in 2000 for my first year in 2001, while we had such rapid progression and then ended up in a in, in a grand final within a couple of years from coming off the bottom of the ladder in 99, because of because of those connections and how mm. tight we were, and and how well we played together based on just playing our roles mm. um, rather than anyone specifically needing to start. So yeah, it was well put together. Did you did you do a lot of socialising away from football? Because it kind of feels at the moment, Jimmy, like that maybe doesn't happen as much with the younger generation. Was was that a big thing of mix to um to spend a lot of time together on and off the field? Yeah, it was. It was, and and, and you know, no, normal thing, barbecues and backyards and things like that. Um, and and the, and the young blokes, it was still measured. You know, Mick didn't mind people going out for a beer and things like that. Mm. Um, yeah, look, I, I've you know, I've been. To, you know, uh, painted with the brush of sort of being asocial at times, mainly because I just tried to keep my head down. But, but from from a from a social life point of view, and this this is one of the you know the great things, but the sad things of playing in a footy club like that. Your whole life revolves around the organisation, mm. yeah. your work, 
yep. um, your social life and your family life. So mm-hmm. we're all so connected in that, that you know, uh, to the point where wives and partners came through together. We all sort of got married and engaged together um, at the same time. We're having kids around about the same time. So when you finally leave an organisation like that, um, geez, it's, it's proper cold turkey. It takes, takes some adjustment and you, and you suddenly realise how important all those people and those relationships and and, and the organisation was to you. It, um, yeah, it takes some adjustment. Like getting out of prison. Like, I would imagine. <laughs> I would imagine like getting out of prison. Not, not, not quite so bad. Just reframing it in an Abbotsford context. Yeah. Um, Look, we want to talk about the backline a little bit more. We're we're both defenders on Piehard, so it's an area that we love diving into. Hang on, I'm I'm a I'm a creative small medium sized <laughs> forward team. I don't know where you got that from. I like that you almost said small forward. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> we're a non visual podcast, but he's not a small forward. We do love prototypes, so Jimmy on Piehard, as we said in the introduction, you were a stingy defender with an attacking rebound and that prototype of nullifying tall and small forwards, as I said in the intro. How did you prepare to play on dangerous forwards of all different shapes and sizes? And do you think your assets would suit today's Collingwood game plan where you never have to man up on an opponent <laughs> ever? <laughs> Jeez, I'm, not, I'm not commenting on that part. But yeah, the, game, the game has certainly evolved and and in fact, in one sense, I think more teams are now starting to look for a lockdown defender or two. Um, so it's funny how things sort of swing you know, come through fashions and things. Yeah. Mm. But yeah. Look, I just um, I just tried to keep it simple. You know, at, at the end of the day, um, in my in my earlier years in development, I got you know too uh, worried about particular players and how I was going to play, and if a contest didn't go the right way, and then I fretted on it and off, and you know it didn't end well for me. So. By the time I got to Collingwood, more as a, let's call it a more mature recruit at the ages of 23, I'd, I'd work things out a little bit better. And so in preparation to play on some of these players, I'd just watch, you know, hours of footage in regards to, you know, were they more left-sided, right-sided, running patterns, leading patterns and all these sorts of things. And I've worked on the principle of just working to percentages and pushing guys into spaces that they traditionally didn't score from. And if they scored from them, then so be it. You know, there's not much you can do about it. So there was that preparation. Mm. So by the time I got out there, I, I just I would know a, I'd know an opponent inside out um, from mm. that perspective. And playing on them sort of year after year, you sort of get that catalogue as well. Um, and then the other aspect of just as far as preparation is, and uh, Bluey McKenna certainly helped me with it when he turned up in 2003, is turning that sort of close-checking style and nullifying them into, you know, rebound attacking. Yeah. Um, and that, that was a game changer with Bluey McKenna coming on. So getting away from having 10 or 12 touches and, and locking someone down to having 20 touches and, and not only locking them down but being really dangerous the other way and actually starting to kick a few goals. And then coming back once again just to the contest by contest, I, I was able to compartmentalise, um, you know, particular contests within each quarter. So the idea was, you know, next time the ball comes down, it's just the one contest and I'm either going to win it, I'm not, or, or I'm going to halve it. And mm. as soon as the ball either went up the field or went out of bounds, I'd almost recalibrate and say, right, it's all about the next contest. I wouldn't think about what was in the rearview mirror or what was coming in the next quarter. It was all about the next moment. And it just it just worked for me. And it just really, really sharpened your focus. And, um, and I think it sort of sharpened my teammates around me as well. We sort of had a very, very similar approach. Mm. We kind of... From the outside looking in, it was like a RoboCop kind of approach where 
you just couldn't be you just couldn't be beaten in, in really key moments and it was fantastic to watch and I always remember you as someone who you know ha- you've got a bit of height around you I mean what's your what's your height I think Damo mentioned the uh, one, 190 yeah, so what is that 62 around there yeah. yeah right so but the the thing was that below the waist you kind of had a really terrific turning circle you're able to corral and kind of change direction like a much smaller player which which always stood out to me but Bring it back to um, some of the more well-known uh, moments in your career. Were, were you aware, Jimmy, that your performance in a 2006 game versus Essendon has been cited as precipitating the hands-in-the-back rule that, that was brought in the following season? And how did it feel changing the entire fabric of the code by making James Hurd look like a floppy-armed child? <laughs> oh, look, I'd, I'd, I'd had some great contests um, with Hurd. He's just... You know, still one of the most phenomenal players who have played the game. And um, I think everyone remembers that game as far as me getting hold of him, but I reckon I did assist him winning one or two Anzac Day medals, so people have <laughs> that aspect to it. But, yeah, look, it, 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 uh, I sort of developed um, that strategy because in the years before that, you know, the chopping the arms rule came in. Mm. So, the, mm. so the whole aspect of these one-on-one contests were just swinging in the favour of... Um, you know, were swinging in the favour of the forward. So I just worked on the prison. We had Steve Silvani um, coming down and doing some coaching for us at the time. So the idea was, you know, engaging an opponent and sort of pushing them under the ball and things like that, you know, within the rules. Mm-hmm. And they were within the rules at that point in time. Where without shoving someone, you could, you know, put your hands on them and actually, you know, shove them out of the way. Mm-hmm. And um, unfortunately for Heard on that day, I mean, he wasn't getting the best service from up the ground and they just kept on dropping the ball on his head. So I had ample opportunities to move him off the ball because I was a bit stronger. If he'd kept me moving around and he got silver service delivery, then, you know, it's a, it's a far harder proposition. But, yeah, look, the fallout from that game was just phenomenal and it was almost immediate. Um, mm. um, one, as far as criticism, um, uh, you know, on television and radio um, in the sense of... Um, you know, the purity of the game and the purity of the one-on-one contest. Um, there were YouTube videos made about me being a cheat. Um, and, and then I, I stupidly, stupidly stood up for myself at, at a presser on the basis of going, well, you know, one of my idols was, you know, Stephen Silvani. And when you go and have a look at his contest with the likes of Dunstall and Ablett and so, mate, it was, you know, mm. almost get put for manslaughter, you know, the way he used to molest them and all these sorts of things as far mm. as manhandling. Mm. And he made, you know, fullback of the century. So he tried to model, you know, a lot of the footy on, you know, engaging heavily. So then to, you know, have the criticism on the back of that and then it, you know, worked into the principle where I made this bloody stupid comment, you know, being a bit glib and said, you know, with with the current rules and where they're going, you know, still Stephen Silvani wouldn't even get a game. So mm-hmm. then the next pile-on came. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's sort of elements that, I didn't enjoy, and uh, you know, if you go back to that, you know, scenario, why did I, you know, when I retired in two thousand and seven, just disappear into the sunset without any media engagement or anything like that? It just hadn't had great experiences with it. Gave me bloody anxiety to tell you the truth, and yeah, uh, yeah learned the hard way that you just best to keep your head down and let your footy do the talking rather than rather than your mouth. So I've gone off on a massive tangent there. I've seriously got, I've obviously no, no. set issues up. Just to you know, set the record straight once and for all, Jimmy. You're saying that Silvani shouldn't have played a game for Carlton. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, absolute gun could play at either end. <laughs> absolute gun could play at either end, and I just used to love the way he went about it. So I tried to model a little bit of my game on on that. Well, so, it's interesting. I can see parallels, you know, perhaps not to that extent, but currently with Darcy Moore debate, I think media and the public love to pile on a Collingwood player from time to time. Um, and certainly with Darcy at the moment, there's a furor around whether he should be checking his opponent's more more closely, but look from our point of view, you were playing the rules as they were written at the time, and and doing it with extraordinary success. And so, in that prime period of your career, there was a lot of young talent coming through at Collingwood, with the likes of Shaw, Pendlebury, Thomas, all coming into the frame, and others. And those players needed to be developed for the club to move back up the ladder. There was also parallels with today's situation at Collingwood where we are a few years now from a grand final appearance and looking to invest in the the younger brigade for our next tilt at it. So I guess my question is in your last in your last year we ended up going down to Geelong in a heartbreaking preliminary final exit and you hang up the boots thereafter just as the team was beginning to compete with the top teams in the league. My question is did you see the makings of a premiership at the club at the time? And how did it feel seeing them achieve the ultimate success only a few years after you finished up? Uh, the simple answer is absolutely. Um, they, they're always going in one direction and they're always you know, going to challenge. And I think even at the end of 2009, early 2010, prior to that premiership season, Nick Maxwell actually came out and said, we're going to win it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's, that's ballsy to say the least. But it, it, was, it was built on that confidence and development that we'd actually seen through that you know, six, seven and eight you know, years and building and and the handing over really to that next generation that had been developed, um, you know, and I'll just talk about the back line under the likes of, you know, Shane Wakeland and myself and a couple of other senior players. So they were always going to be, you know, very, very talented. And, and fortunately, um, we had harvested some top-end talent, you know, as far as draft picks that went on to be, you know, real superstars of the game. And, you know, Pendlebury's an absolute no-brainer, but Daisy Thomas... Um, Alan Didat was an extraordinary talent. Mm. Um, now, while he wasn't around, Ryan Loney, you know, how he didn't make it through, I do not know. Mm. Mm. Uh, Josh Fraser missed out on the flag, but, you know, top, top in talent. Um, and then some of those sort of backline players, Johnson was still there, Heathshaw was still there. Um, so, you know, phenomenal names, phenomenal footballers, and, you know, all younger players coming through that system, you know, under our senior players. So no, no surprise that they won it in 2010. Genuine surprise that they didn't go back to back in 11. Mm. Yeah. And, and then genuine surprise that they then tapered off so quickly because um, they, they were still young men with plenty of football left in them. So, you know, it's, it's funny how it comes in fits and spurts. Yeah, tell us about that uh, 2011 season and 12, 13 and 14. Um, <clears throat> you still have ties with the club, Jimmy, um, as we've touched on some of your ex-teammates, Josh Fraser. Uh, Licker, uh, Nick Maxwell, they all have senior leadership positions at the club. Uh, were you ever sounded out for a senior leadership position at the club, either formally or informally, after you finished up? Um, not for some time. Um, I think because the club understood that, um, you, know, I would, you know, I was done with football in, in a sense and and. Uh, and Part of me um, was ready to retire in 07, yet part of me was, you know, uh, pretty upset to leave it all behind at the time. So I think, you know, they just left me alone. 
uh, for a period, and I didn't watch any football or attend any functions or anything along those lines. So then later on, uh, post the Mick years, yeah, there was some informal approaches, but um, you know, in reality, I, I never considered it. You know, football was a great time in life, but just that, a time in life. Mm. Um, and it's only recently that I've actually gone back into AFL in a in a in an official capacity as a non-executive director of the Fremantle Football Club, which has been been enlightening. I've loved it. I've actually loved being back in footy. So um, yeah, I think the time off, which was a good ten or so years between drinks, was uh, was was the right amount of time. You're also quite busy off field, but it's great to see you back in football. Um, in, in your capacity uh, on the board of Fremantle, it's um, it's great that your brain hasn't been lost um, uh, to the game because, I mean, we do hold a glimmer of hope here at Pie Hard that um, one day, who knows, uh, there could be a return to uh, that two-bedroom shack in Abbotsford. And, uh, <laughs> Have you still got that, Jimmy? Because if you hang, no. on, hang on to that from year 2000, you'd be a pretty wealthy man. I, I would. I would. So I went too early. No, no, it's... Um Sold it. We, whenever we can get back to Melbourne, which hasn't been for some time because of COVID, and all this, we, we'd, uh, we'd sort of go past it. Um, so we've obviously had a bad run. Last time I went past it, we put some security mesh on the front window. So obviously things have gone backwards rather than forwards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, they probably know who, who live there. So it's, you know, every Collingwood fan tearing the door open looking for some kind of memorabilia. <laughs> I think it's just a crackdown. We've got a, we've got a few more questions, Jimmy, um, and thank you so much for your time so far. Uh, it, it's on record that you were considered a really important um, mentor by Heredia Lumumba. Uh, we're just interested, like, h- how has it felt to watch events sort of unravel over recent years and just interest, interested to know if you've been in touch with uh, Heredia at all? Uh, no, I haven't. I haven't since um, uh, since his last days in the AFL system. And as you can imagine, pretty pretty sensitive subject that I'm, I'm you know desperately try to avoid. But you know, had a feeling that this sort of question would come up. But what what I will say about H is is in reality the day he walked in the door, not much has changed about him. You know, in the sense of um, high curiosity, high intelligence, high principles. Um, you know, a, a man of real principles, um, you know, both of, you know, the, within himself and those around him. Mm. Um, and that's obviously been translated in, in, in the fever that he's sort of prosecuted, you know, his case, mm. you know, that, that, that's been going on. Um, and he always had a real care for people around him and outside. I, I can remember huge debates used to happen about the homeless. Mm. How much he cared for the homeless, he, you know, his the statistical analysis and understanding he had of you know of of homelessness in Victoria and um, and the mental health issues within homelessness and and all these sorts of things. Extraordinary guy, and outside of that, um, um, loved being his mentor. He was hungry for success, hungry for improvement. Terrific guy to be around. Somebody I trust on the field and off the field. Um, and uh, he went on to great things. You know, putting aside um, the ugliness of the current situation, um, you know, a guy that I considered a good friend and had the pleasure mm. of handing my number to when I moved on, and and he and he he, he went and drove number eight home, you know, with mm. all Australians and premierships and all sorts. Absolutely, of, I'm very very proud of him. Absolutely, absolutely, and that's great to hear. Can, can I ask a, a more general question? And I completely yep. understand it's it's a sensitive topic, and this is. 
this is a question that Alex and I have been kicking around a little bit. We've tried to explore this topic. Um, we've had a few false starts on PyHard trying to sort of assess it and analyze it and talk to it. We can't. Um, we, we don't have the insight. But one, one question that comes up is, and maybe putting your, you know, your Fremantle board hat on now, can a large sporting organization with lawyers and marketing departments whose sole role is to protect individuals and to protect the brand open themselves up to the level of truth-telling that is expected um, these days? Or is that inherently always going to be a challenge for clubs like Collingwood because to fully open up, admit blame and, and focus on some pretty uh, nasty incidents in the past, that level of sort of legal and PR uh, protection needs needs to come yeah. down. Look, that's that question. Look, it's a good one, but it's a it's a deep and winding rabbit hole. That one. But uh, what, what what I would say, um, it's probably easier for newer organisations and older organisations to adapt and open themselves up to um, of well, not being there in the first place in regards to you know issues around you know race and discrimination and all these sort of stuff, whether it's real or perceived, because newer organisations that come into um, you know the competition uh, are far more progressive, actually start their culture and acceptance and membership basis on, on a far more let's call it um, modern view on the way that we treat each other and treat multiculturalism and, and our indigenous brothers. The problem with an organisation that's been around forever and when a situation arises like this in, in regards to, you know, picking off the scab and actually seeing the hurt that has happened over many, many years, you're talking about an organisation that's trying to change potentially 100 years of history, you know, versus just a window that, for instance, an H had recognised um, and lived through in that period of time. So. Very difficult for organisations and very difficult for all parties on either side of the fence. I know that that's a very circumspect kind of answer, but a very complicated issue. Certainly is and ongoing. Jimmy, you were revered as one of the smartest Collingwood footballers we've ever seen, and that's not necessarily an oxymoron. Can you explain to us where your professional life has taken you since footy for our listeners who might be curious? And why a traditional post-playing career fronting gambling ads wasn't good enough for you? Um, oh, look, I've, I've I've had a blessed life. I really have, and I've had a really interesting life. You know, both in football and out of football. And and one of the things I took the opportunity when I was still playing at the Pies um, with with the club support and the AFLPA is you know it was effectively a professional university student there for one step. So. There's uh, a number of degrees and sort of postgrads and masters and things like science and business and, and, and things like that. So um, I've been in the financial markets, capital markets, uh, you know, worked in, you know, investment advisory and funds management and things like that, which was, you know, fun but a bit soul-destroying. Um, and when I came back to West Australia, I, you know, had a had a marine biology degree that I'd never used and the whole agribusiness thematic was happening around the world and around Australia and, you know, why didn't have the billions that a lot of these billionaires had going by cattle stations and things like that. Uh, I thought that was a great opportunity um, as far as agribusiness, but in commercial fishing rights, mm. in the statutory commercial fishing rights. So um, with the assistance of a, of a great group of shareholders, mentors and friends, um, we went and purchased 
um, some some jewel of crown fishing assets in West Australia and created an ASX listed vertical integrated agribusiness, primarily commercial fishing. Um, you know, from a from a standing start, created um, you know new branding, new distribution, new products ended up in a whole range of international markets and supermarkets, and then that ended up being taken over uh, by South African based um, multinational fishing companies. So so that journey ended. Mm. Um, and then from there, I got the invitation to go and uh, lead another ASX company, but this time in um, water services. So being in West Australia, primarily resource clients and providing uh, water services for resource clients. But um, so that's opened up a whole new world in the sense of environment, sustainability, governance opportunities in, in ownership of water and the use of water and, um, you know, water as a resource. So, you know, somebody told me 10 years ago that I'd be fascinated and have passion about water as an asset. I would have told them that bloody mad. Mm. So, look, it's, it's been an incredible journey. I've had lots of opportunities, a normal thing, made lots of mistakes and, Lots of experience and lots of successes as well. And uh, uh, this this isn't the end. This is not where I'm going to stay. I'm I'm I'm, I'm looking forward to the you know the next ten to fifteen years. So that's that's what I've been up to. Yeah, I didn't understand a lot of what you said, but geez, I wish our forward line was vertically integrated. <laughs> <laughs> Two part question, Jimmy. Do you stay in touch with teammates, or who do you stay in touch with uh, today from your past teammates? And if you had to. If you had to yep. select one fellow defender to kick a set shot for goal to save your life, would it be Simon Prestigiacomo or poor man's James Clement, Carl Steinfurt? <laughs> um, going on with that, I do, I do stay in touch with players. And, 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 and interestingly enough, you know, the, the longer I'm out, the more I, I reflect on my time. The most important thing was you know, not so much the playing of football but was the connections and friendships I made for it. Which will, which will be long-lasting. I can only imagine what it feels like to win a premiership with a group. Yeah. They were so close because I, I feel so connected, particularly with my fellow backline players from that time. Mm. Um, look, I still stay in touch with the likes of um, you know, Presti and um, you know, Tarkin Locker and Burnsy and Paul Curia and, and Co. And whenever I could get to uh, Melbourne, would see Presti you know, every now and then. So mm-hmm. we stay in touch and uh, have been starved of opportunities, particularly with over here in the West to get together. So we're looking forward to the world normalising and, and being able to see each other again. And then getting your question around, you know, uh, kicking the goal. Now, um, Funky Steinford, he could kick straight but couldn't kick over a jam tin. <laughs> but, <laughs> Funky. But, but, but Presky, like Presky was, yeah. was hyper-talented. Uh, footy player and the poor bugger just got pigeonholed as a fullback. Oh, yeah, but he was he was a, a talented football beyond what you just saw. And, and so yeah, I'd give it to Presty. He he could he could he could kick a footy. I reckon, given our um, record of recruiting backmen like Majek and making them our sole key forward, if we if we brought Presty in today, he may well be our spearhead. No, I, I can recall um, Presky went through a couple of games where he sat on the bench and got donuts. I think a couple of weeks in a row, which was um, which was pretty fun ribbing, ribbing him for a couple of weeks. But there was a game where you know post that Mick decided to give him a run and threw him forward uh, for about five to ten minutes. But he he took three of the biggest clunks up forward in packs that you've ever seen. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, nobody remembers it. And so when you talk yeah. to Presty in his junior football days, I'm pretty sure yeah. he's pretty pretty handy and powerful centre half forward. Yeah. So, mm. Um, yeah, and it just gets back to you know you play the role that you're, 
that your team requires. And, you know, there's a guy that was super talented that could probably have played up the ground for another team, but just just got, you know, now wed with the, with the you know, the glove. Who, yeah. You know, if, he, if he had a game where he got more than one position per quarter, he was shooting the lights out. So. Is, Jimmy, is he, is Presty someone that we would expect him to be, like a shy, retiring kind of monosyllabic type, or is he different when you befriend him? Um, it's different when you befriend him, particularly if he if he has a beer. But um, but yeah, very quiet, very reserved. I mean, his his nickname was Wilson, based on the uh, the ball volleyball from. Uh, <laughs> so that probably gives you an idea. So, uh, very very quiet, reserved. That's guy. great. Yeah. That's awesome. Funk, funky Steinfurt and Wilson Prestigiacomo. We love it. Did you have a nickname, Jimmy? No, no, just, just Jimmy. So I, I managed to dodge that one. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Well, we've we've got one more question for you. Um, very appreciative of your time. Collingwood, of course, it's a big question. It's a hard question. Collingwood travels west to take on Fremantle on Sunday. Who's going to win, Jimmy? Uh, look, sorry, sorry to all your Collingwood listeners, but in for, in for a pound, it's the whole idea for a cliche. Wherever you lay your hats, your home. So I'm yeah, we get it. And I'll be, I'll be looking for Fremantle to win. You know where your toast is buttered. We get it. We get it, Jimmy. And this is a this is an equal opportunity podcast. We have we do actually have a lot of supporters from other teams listen to us. So I think that was the right answer in context. You can tell you can tell us actually off mic what you really think, yeah, exactly. but just in terms of the recording, that's we got that really clear. That's a really clear take. We don't mind Frio because they've never ever seemed like a threat. <laughs> this kind of like this lovely kind of distant purple haze. But um I gotta say that is changing this year. So it's it's good to see. And look, let's be honest, given our history with West Coast, we'd much prefer to see Fremantle do well in mm. the West and represent. So hopefully it's a good game. Appreciate it. Okay, uh, Jimmy, once again, thank you so much for jumping on board um, and giving us your time tonight. It was a fascinating chat. Uh, it's some insight into your playing career and also the Collingwood era of the time that we we love listening to. We don't often get, and I'm sure our listeners will be very appreciative as well. So um, we wish you all the best with your future endeavours, with your career, uh, as well as um, as your family. I uh, hope they're well. And um, next time you're in Melbourne, we'll see you at a President's Club function. We'll be sneaking in through the toilets. <laughs> Thank you, Jess. Appreciate it. Enjoyed it. And that was our interview with Jimmy Clement. Jeez, he was, um, he had an opinion on everything, didn't he? It's funny, Damo, when we reached out to Jimmy Clement, he responded saying, A, he's flattered because he's a big fan of Pie Hard, which was a major turn on for us. I mean, we didn't realise that Clement was a listener. And no. B, are you sure that you want me? I'm concerned I might be too dry. Yeah, too boring. But you know, you know what the wasn't best, the case. The best, no, not at all. The best thing about the, the first interaction with Jimmy Clement I had was... I think he assumed that I was like a producer or some, some kind of yeah. PA for Pie Hard. We've got front room stuff. Because he was like, oh, I, lo- I love those guys. I love listening to the pod. I'd, I'd be happy to join. And I was like, oh, no, hey, it's <laughs> yeah, it's me. Yeah. I'm Pie, the other guy's hard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was interesting, I thought, Damo, was I think we could see that pedigree, that CEO business pedigree in that, and you mentioned this before we were rolling, 
CEOs have to develop their communication skills to the nth degree and they have to be mm. able to communicate complex ideas with clarity and efficiently because, hmm. you know, you, the, the shareholder wants to know whether they're going to make any coin at the end of the financial year and they want to know mm -hmm. it, you know, in, in the correct language. But mm. it's interesting those skills, I think, really transfer to media. And I, I think that he is someone who could do more media and his storytelling, his anecdotes, but his, uh, his clear and concise opinions, I thought, were very powerful. And I was I was really impressed with the guy. He could do more media, more media but what I love about it is he doesn't want to. Mm. That's not, it's not his bag. He doesn't feel comfortable. No. It gives him anxiety. It's, it's not his thing. He and lives on an island in the Indian Ocean, doesn't yeah. he? <laughs> That's something that's really told us before the recording. He's on a prawn trawler. Hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, look, that's that's one of the things we love um, love about Jimmy Clement. Collingwood football is coming in all shapes and sizes and we hmm. love the quiet magpies. And uh, yeah, so look, we'll be back next week. Uh, normal programming will be resumed. Thank you so much for keeping it locked. As always, I'm Damian Miller. This is Alex Watkins. This is Pie Hard. <laughs>